0: Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? your cherry jam I won't you save all your cherry jam I won't you save all your cherry jam just for me girl please don't give none away let it get sweeter by the day I oh, won't you save it baby won't you save it Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet
1: blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Pass. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we actually have guests in the studio. It's amazing. We're going to talk about one of the new paradigms in eating in the United States. And uh, to that end, I have invited uh, Matt Wadiak. 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 Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, to join me. He is the uh, chief operating officer and a founder of Blue Apron. If you haven't seen uh, Blue Apron's um, promotional materials, believe me, I'm sure you will be soon because they seem to be expanding like, um, you know, amoeba. Um, but anyway, they they provide a very interesting service, and we're going to dissect that. Uh, Matt is a graduate of the CIA in Hyde Park, so he actually does know how to cook. Um, he began his career by cooking for chefs Charlie Trotter and Paul Bertoli. And and later spent several years sourcing and importing rare ingredients like white truffles for chefs and food companies around the world. That's a fun gig. I would have loved to do that. Um, in 2004, Matthew founded Cook's Venture, a catering and events company. As executive chef, he and his team hosted and cooked for culinary events for a wide array of clientele, including Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. You were in the same room with George Bush, Matt, and you <laughs> actually say that?
0: Everybody eats. <laughs> That's
1: all I can say. I don't know. I think I would have stood on principle for that one. So, Um, One thing I didn't find out from um, looking at your website of Blue Apron is when did it start?
0: It's like three years old, four years old? Yeah, we started about three years ago. And it was me and my two co co founders, uh, Matt Salzberg and Elia Pappas. And, you know, we were a tiny little startup. We had uh, 20 boxes on our first week in a little commissary kitchen down the road here in uh, Long Island City, Queens. Mm And, you know, uh, our initial vision was we thought it would be really cool to start a company where we would get people back in the kitchen cooking again. And it just really took off. And it was really, yeah. really amazing to see that. Was
1: that word of mouth? So, wait, let's let's explain for people who don't know what Blue Apron is, in case you don't live in the New York City metro sure. area or even in the United States, as mm-hmm. I do have an international mm-hmm. audience. Um, How does Blue Apron work, and what is it? Let's start with the basics. So
0: we deliver to the whole country, over 99% of the country, and what we do is we will send our subscribers a box of food with all of the ingredients you need to cook recipes at home with the ingredients that are measured out to those recipes, a recipe card, and step-by-step instructions and exactly how to do it with photographs along the way for each step.
1: I know. It's amazing. I've actually seen... One of the reasons I got interested in you is not only because of the growth of these companies, but but also because one of my neighbors subscribes. And so she showed me just the recipe cards themselves. I was so impressed with, like, it's got the photography. It's in four color. It's on this thick, heavy cardstock. I mean, just... Printing those must cost a fortune. So um, first, let's find out how many of these companies are nationwide besides you what's your well, the, who, who you are know, your there, big
0: competitors There are a lot of companies that kind of do what we do but we're by far the biggest in our right. space and we're the you know the only one that's really focused on sustainability farm sourcing soil management all of the things that we think that ethically drive food forward to the next level Right And you know we don't really think about our company in terms of what's competitive out there we're in a a trillion dollar industry of buying food and groceries and the way that we think about it is You know, if you think about food over the course of the next 10, 20 years, it's not going to be the same as it has been traditionally. With the advent of the Internet, everything changes. Pharmaceutical industry has changed. The way we consume goods and buy, you know, a a radio changes. You go on Amazon.com, right? Yes. The way you do anything in your life has changed because of the Internet. And really the one industry that's been lagging for, you know— The last 10 years has been the food industry. So that will change too. And we think that, you know, there's a huge market in front of us, and everybody who eats can be a consumer of of some, a different way to buy food online. So um, what kind of numbers are we actually talking about? Are you allowed to divulge your uh, client base? Well, we're, we're serving millions of meals per month now uh-huh. and, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers without being too specific. Right. But, um, you know, it's it's growing really quickly and it, it turns out that, you know, people are hungry for something metaphorically and, and, and actually, you know, physically for something different. They want they want change in their, their food system and the way they buy their food. And, you know, it's, it's our job to responsibility. We have responsibility. to fulfill that
1: right right so what's the what's the average cost per meal and how long do customers tend to stay with you or is it like a long-term relationship or is it like they'll do it for a few weeks and then maybe suddenly they're full of confidence and they can do it themselves or they suddenly realize eating at home isn't that hard or yeah what's the how's that shake out so
0: our meals start at 874 per person per meal okay how do you do that stop right there So one of the things that we do, (laughs) it's a good question. How do you do it? How do you you serve people like really great produce and really great meats for a good price? You know, it's vertical integration. It's taking steps out of supply chain. You know, a lot of consumers don't realize when they go to a grocery store that food has often already been handled two or three or four times before it gets to that store from when somebody grows it to contracts it to another organization, to a distributor, to a grocery store. Right. So... There's a, obviously a lot of cost and packaging associated with that, and we we eliminate a lot of that by buying it directly from farmers who are growing foods specifically for us. Mm-hmm. And you think about you know a twenty thirty percent markup on food every time it goes through another person, food becomes really inaccessible really quickly.
1: Right. You know
0: we're able to actually run a healthy business while working directly with people and lower the cost of food on average. So you're cutting the distribution you're essentially
1: bypassing the the sort of current distributor model exactly right
0: (laughs) so is uh (laughs) you laugh like that's crazy but but no no it is kind of crazy because well people you know honestly in the very beginning when we started doing this people didn't want to do that it was challenging there are these paradigms set up for how food is delivered in in the united states and it's unfortunate and you know this all sort of came um out of when I was a young chef working in Italy, working in France, I would go to the local markets where farmers were selling foods to people directly. And the cost of, you know, a a tomato at an Italian farmer's market is very different than the cost of a tomato at Union Square at the farmer's market, which is an incredible market. People should go there if they haven't been. But the reason is, is because there's a, a, the idea to accessibility to food to everyone. You know, it's, it's really a shame that in our country, Really great food is only something that is catered to the elite of our country. When I believe it's a basic human right, like absolutely, you know, like breathing air, we should be able to eat good food.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. But to go back to this distribution issue, because I personally think that the distribution um, system in this country, which is essentially U.S. Foods and Cisco, yeah. right, and then they were there was even an antitrust suit I think recently mm-hmm. when uh, Cisco tried to acquire U.S. Foods, correct and to my mind they have a stranglehold on the food industry completely
0: and that they are a real impediment to small and medium sized farms correct me if i'm wrong huge impediment you. we actually systematically refuse to work with either of those companies because yeah. of because of that we don't we don't advocate for for how, how they do business and how they treat farms and how they distribute to their people. And it's inflationary to the end consumer at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. So then, um, but I have to ask you the question, like, how do you manage? I mean, obviously, you guys are working directly with farmers. You just said you cut the distribution thing out of the, the system. But how do you how do you do it? How do you, you call, talk to a farmer and you say, I need X number of bushels of this? And what, do they deliver it to you? Do you have a truck that goes to them? Do you do a truck route? I mean, somehow you have to get it all to your fulfillment house, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. So, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. We have different relationships with different farmers. We have dozens of farmers that we work with directly, Mm -hmm. and and currently we actually are contract-growing millions of pounds of food, specifically of varieties that have never been commercially grown before. We have over 1.1 million pounds of food that we're going through these farmers, and some farmers have trucks and they can deliver to us. Some uh, farmers need a little help, and we'll have to work with a a third party to pick stuff up and send it to us, and sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll Pick it up ourselves, but you know one of the things that we need to solve for, and one of the challenges on our plate, is how to make that a little bit more approachable to everyone, and, and create a universal way of of delivery. And you know there are a few things that that we do that are really helpful, like. You know, working with companies that use plastic, reusable, recyclable totes as opposed to corrugated boxes. So taking all of that packaging out of the food industry by right. reusing those totes, working with delivery companies that can do that. And there, this is not an evolved supply chain yet. This will be in time, but, you know, it's... This, this kind of thinking will support a lot of kinds of businesses besides just farming, including in, in transportation, including in, in, you know, packaging, engineering, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of other different kinds of... Um, have
1: you heard of those guys up in Troy who make packaging out of mushrooms?
0: I have actually heard of those guys. Because
1: uh, interviewed, I interviewed them a couple of years yeah. ago, and I, I thought they were just brilliant. It was such a great idea. And what they're doing is so innovative and so interesting. I think they're called Ecovinate. Mm-hmm. I think that is the name of the company, actually. So anyway, I was just going to mention that in case you wanted to, like, talk to them about developing packaging specifically for you. Cause you know, why not? Yeah. They were, Support they were a couple students business, right? and they started this on the That's side right. and now it's
0: kind of a big operation. They're at
1: Rensselaer Polytech. Yeah. Really cool. Exactly. Yeah. They're amazing. So, um, so talk about a little bit about how this works for farmers. So you contract with them in advance and you just said that you're asking them to grow specific, uh, products for you. Um, how, how do you find those guys and how do you maintain a quality control? Because that's often a problem when you're working with smaller farmers and you're going to work with multiple guys and is everybody going to be growing something similar or Mm -hmm. similar in quality? How do you manage for that? Because I think that's quite a challenge.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of the... The advantages of working with small farmers, if if they're engaged in the process and in the food and they're growing unique things, they get really excited about it. So yeah. their quality is much higher than what you can find on a commodity market compared to something that you can find at like Hunt's Point. You know, if you can grow a lipstick pepper or a raja eggplant or a purple long bean, right. you know, they get honestly really stoked about the idea of growing cool foods they've never been been able to grow before they get really excited because we talk to them about what their needs are do they need to do a rotation where a legume goes in the soil because they just picked cabbage right. you know are we adding nitrogen to the soil are we taking nitrogen out of the soil how are we tilling and we have those conversations with them based on their specific farming needs and the real advantage to our model versus traditional retail model is that we can plan our menus according to the needs of the farmer so, right. if a farmer says, I want to grow carrots for you because that's my next rotation crop, I can write a menu with Carfax or, or with uh, Atlas carrots, for example, right. and I can put that on the menu for you know, fifty thousand of our boxes on a, a given week and do and, and manage that accordingly. So we're really supporting the farmer to their needs as opposed to a traditional retail application. If you think about a customer when they go into a grocery store, they're looking around the shelf and they're deciding what they want to buy. And a grocery store then has the problem of trying to feed the demand of the retail consumer of, of what they're choosing. So they're going out to their growers and, and to their distributors and they're saying, We need you to grow X, Y, Z and you know, I don't really care what your rotation is. I don't really care how you manage your soil. This is what our customers want. We're saying, what does the farmer want to grow? And then we're putting that on our menu accordingly. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I'm going to go back to something you just said, which was uh, we'll say to the farmer, you know, if you're growing Atlas carrots, we'll put that into 50,000 of our boxes. Um, So then how do you get that, those carrots to 50,000 different? I mean, I'm assuming that different fulfillment houses have different Um, Numbers So Mm -hmm. you're not Sending it all To one place For 50,000 boxes Right Right. So
0: you know We have uh, So how do you Manage that part of it We have this Incredible farm Sourcing department And we have An incredible uh, Farm sourcing Director Beth Who manages Local teams At every Fulfillment center And those local Farm sourcing teams Who are separate Than our traditional Purchasing teams Specifically work With farmers And they Aggregate data From those farms They schedule The crops accordingly And they try to Plant crops between sister farmers on different coasts and different fulfillment Mm -hmm. centers to grow for us locally and then get all of the food to our fulfillment centers to deliver at to those specific recipes at the same time, right? It's a really complicated puzzle, so that's it one is. of the things we're doing. But it it creates much better food, and it's much better relationships with our growers. Certainly, and much better for the soil. I mean, you know, I go to a lot of food conferences,
1: and I, that is definitely something that people are really, really concerned about now. I mean, the farming community seems to be more and more worried about it, and you know, and even and certainly consumers are becoming aware that. It does it doesn't just like fall from the sky there's actually a cost of extraction Mm -hmm. you know when you grow the same thing over and over again um so um let me ask you this uh how uh, well let's go back to the recipes and Mm -hmm. the stuff like that so who first of all who develops the recipes
0: so is that you? The, I, I wrote the first 300 recipes in my, my tiny one-bedroom Lower East Side apartment, which was our test kitchen for the first year and a half of the company. Right. And uh, we hired an incredible culinary director, an old uh, chef friend of mine that I've worked with for over a decade. Wow. And now we have a team of a couple guys who are, are very much in that tight culinary circle. Um, our culinary director is a guy from Blue Hill Stone Barn. He worked uh-huh. up there. Really Great. smart guy. Um, our culinary manager, who also works to develop recipes, Um also a plethora of experienced Thomas Keller guy. And, um, you know, we've known each other for a long time. We have similar interest in food. We have a similar similar interest in the ecology of farming. Right. And, uh, you know, we write the recipes together. Uh-huh. Um, mostly those guys now, but I still review all of the recipes myself. Do you? Yeah. And
1: as a consumer, how long does it take to execute one of your recipes? This is a trick question. I'll
0: just take it's it. It's a trick <laughs> question because... <laughs> It's a trick question. It depends on how how good of a chopper you are. Would be yeah. my answer. You know, yeah. if you're if you can chop quickly and you're proficient with a knife, you can easily cook a recipe in 35 minutes. But if you're just getting started in the kitchen, which is okay, it takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. What, what I would tell people who are just getting started in the kitchen is. Don't be intimidated by, you know, your first couple experiences. It takes time. And the best way to learn how to cook and get faster is just do it all the time. Cook yes. on a regular basis. Make the commitment to know that, you know, if you're running running a marathon, you don't start on day one and run, you know, a four-hour marathon. It takes some time to get up to that level sure. and train through it, just like it takes time in the kitchen. It's a skill.
1: Right. Well, that's why I was asking you if, if this was like a gateway to becoming a cook and then you, don't, you can leave Blue Apron behind? Or do you find that people just find the service so extraordinarily convenient that they stick with it?
0: It's a gateway no way to becoming what. a cook. And if you cook Blue Apron every day, you will not necessarily need Blue Apron, but nobody needs Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a better solution to cooking because we do a lot of the work in terms of you do the, the planning. We do a lot, yeah. and the meals are good, and we do a lot of the work in terms of not just the shopping, but also shopping for really great stuff and finding things right. that that are not really available in the common space
1: and also spices i mean we should describe like what a package when you get a carton from blue apron and i, I don't mean to give an infomercial i hate doing infomercials <laughs> but it really i was just blown away when i saw this so what happens is you get it's all in these like nice little freezery bags or whatever you know refrigerated things and it's like you if you need one scallion there's one scallion if you and so the great thing about it, to my mind, also to you know to give you another plug here. Oh my God, I hate myself. But um, <laughs> to give you another plug is there's no waste. You're not buying a bunch of scallions, using one or two, and the rest of them become slime in your refrigerator, which, you know, guilty as charged. True. I've done that a million times, and I am a very proficient cook. I did cook professionally for many years, and I still waste food all the time
0: just because I'm not always home. Yeah. You
1: know? It happens. So, I mean,
0: everybody's bought, you know, that, that head of kale or, or right. lettuce or cilantro or whatever, and then you use it for one dish, and you open your fridge a week later, and it's rotten. You have to throw it out. Yeah and you right. actually usda this is a, a little known fact the usda estimates that 25 to 50 percent of fresh food that americans buy ends up spoiling and oh, getting thrown no away question. there is there's
1: absolute data to support that in fact 40 percent of the entire food supply in this country winds up in landfill yeah i mean that includes meat not just produce it's yeah. like you know and plus prepared foods and restaurant stuff and you know it's just it's epic and it really it must stop um we are oh I have one last question then we'll take a short break. Sure. Um you sell I noticed a lot of kitchen equipment on this mm-hmm. on your website. <laughs> <laughs> was that part of your original plan or did you discover people just didn't have the tools?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was part of the original plan. We we think it's great because it supports, you know, people's cooking obviously sure. to be able to have access to good equipment, but one of the issues that I always had as a cook and you know, my Friends and family members would always ask me, "What should I buy?" You know, I go into like mm-hmm. Bed Bath and Beyond, and there's like a million things to choose Absolutely. from. Yeah. and even in like a really good cook shop, you know, you go to like JB Prince in New York, which is like the best culinary shop in the world, basically. And there's a lot of options. So we created, we curated a selection of basically the stuff that I have at my house that I cook oh, is with. That right? So everything yeah. that you would buy there is stuff that we test recipes with that we personally use and that we stand behind. Right. That's a cool
1: story yeah okay let's take a quick break um one of you boys out there um we're gonna have a little sponsor job <laughs> sorry jack <laughs> and then we'll be right back with matt wadiak from blue apron we have more to talk about we're gonna talk policy after this
0: <laughs> this is chris howell from Kane vineyard and winery calling in from spring mountain above the napa valley in
1: our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so
0: much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. cane 5com
1: I was busy talking to my guest, you guys. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we are talking with Matt Wadiak from Blue Apron, which in case you have not seen or heard of it, um, which is kind of inconceivable at this point, but um, they are a service that uh, provides meal kits essentially for busy professionals on the go or people who just don't really know how to cook and want to learn. That's right. Um, So... Uh, I wanted to, like, move away from just talking about you guys and then mm-hmm. talk about sort of the overall landscape of how food um, food mores are changing, if yeah. you know what I mean. Um, you know, with with – first of all, what makes your – what do you – you said earlier you don't really compete. But, I mean, at a certain point, you're going to have to because people are going to be um, – you know, they're going to be um, following in your footsteps and mm-hmm. certainly plated already is. And I think there's one or two others mm-hmm. um, that are similar to your company in style. Um, what what do you think will keep you sort of fresh and new and different? Or don't you worry about that?
0: Um, you know, I think competition for any business is something people think about. But, I, you know, we're not specifically focused on our competition we're focused on you know building uh, a better food system and building our company and making you know our mission is to make great home cooking accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. and um we're highly focused on that you know I, i think running your your business intelligently from every part of the business from you know the supply chain and the recipe end and the fulfillment end, you know, keeping the environmental factors in mind that people are concerned about and we're concerned about. And, and likewise, you know, having great marketing strategy, interacting with our customers, having incredible customer service. Those are the things that make businesses successful despite competition or not competition, right? You know, every successful business will be emulated, you know, it's, it's an honor to be emulated in, in some ways. And, you know, it's, it's our job to stay, you know, be the leaders in our industry and stay on top. Right, right.
1: So do you see this trend uh, having an impact on agriculture in the larger sense? Like, do you feel that what you guys are doing and what other companies that are coming up behind you are doing in terms of the way they interact with farmers, in terms of the purchasing decisions that they make, um, do you see that changing something of the
0: landscape uh, out out in the Midwest and the West where most of our fruits and vegetables are grown? Yeah, without a doubt, you know. I think that this is happening, you know, regardless of us. It's something consumers really want. Um, You know, one of the best farming conventions in the world is EcoFarm in California every year. It's fantastic where organic growers can grow and talk about aggregate and talk about sustainable growing and meat and and talk about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who want to grow this kind of food and think like this about supply chain. And there are a lot of consumers who want it. I think where we fit into the picture is we're really the first grocery company in any kind of scale who can actually deliver that. So we're creating a marketing outlet for those companies to sell their produce to and distribute to the country directly for the first time. And, you know, the challenge, if you talk to small growers, I talk to small farmers every single week, and we're working with so many of them, And universally, the the big complaint that that they have is, this is the stuff that I want to grow, but I don't know how to get it to my customer. Mm -hmm. Should I work through a farmer's market? Should I work through a CSA? Am I selling it to a distributor at a loss? Um, you know, am I selling it to hospitals and, and, and other food systems, public schools? So I think we really solve for that by offering an affordable price, taking a lot of the marketing out, and allowing farmers to plan their crops a little bit more intelligently.
1: Right. What about the meat industry, though? How do you guys, because the supply of, uh, of, um I don't know how to call it even, you know, niche product, I would mm-hmm. say in the meat, like the Nyman ranches, like the Snake Rivers. How do you, I mean, you obviously meat is so integrated, so consolidated. There are the four big players. Their meat is really cheap. Uh,
0: the other guy's meat is really not cheap. Yeah. Um, how do you manage that part of it? So it's it's a really good question. I'm actually pretty good friends. We were just talking on the break about Bill Nyman. Bill Nyman has been really integral to helping us oh, to, to build that. Yeah. And, you know, we work with great companies like uh, BN Ranch. And mm-hmm. um, to be able to you know, have people who have been through it and who understand it really intelligently consult for us has changed the way that we're able to operate. One of the things that we do, for example, for chicken is chicken is a complicated thing. And a lot of a lot of Americans don't totally understand that when you're talking about a bird, you have the dark meat and the light meat for a chicken. And companies that sell to, you know, you know one company like for example a lot of the abf chicken in america the dark meat goes to chipotle chipotle right. buys dark meat so some companies will be long on that the, yeah. p- on, the on the white meat that is they'll right. have extra white meat right. so you can have you can buy white meat for an inflated price because it's the the dark meat is being bought at such a low price, but then that raises the price to consumer. So one of the things that we try to do instead of just buying white meat or dark meat is we try to work with sustainable companies who we can utilize the entire animal. Right. So we can schedule our menus with dark meat on one week, white meat on one week, and Mm -hmm. then use the other parts and grind and and other, other stuff like that. And that is a huge advantage to being able to lower the price of the chicken, create a more fair price because we think about food cost in terms of a, a single pack in averages, not mm-hmm. in how much are we charging for white meat and dark meat. Our right. menu pricing is the same. Our food cost should be equal. And we really believe that. Same thing with cattle. When you think about grass-fed beef, you know, if you can commit early in the supply chain to buying portions of the animal and committing to that with the, mm-hmm. the actual farmers, it's called a cattle pack in the industry, you know, you can really lower the overall price of, of meat that you end up selling to your consumer, so you know there's really no reason when you're buying a, a cow that's five hundred pounds of, of usable meat that a ribeye might cost you you know thirty or forty dollars a pound and ground meats three dollars in change. What if we average all of that out by committing sure. to the whole animal and create a fair price for everything and create diversity within our food system? Does that mean that you also have to find somebody different to um, process and, and uh, package?
1: It's actually, like, how do you guys deal with that? Because, like, with cattle, there's very few small-scale cattle processors, for example. Mm -hmm. Very few small-scale chicken, you know, poultry processors, for that matter. Um, How do you guys deal with that that aspect of it? Because that, for all of the small and medium-sized farmers that I know who raise livestock, their Mm -hmm. biggest issue is finding a processor who will, you know take their schedule like they're not sending 4000 animals a day through the grinder you know what i yeah. mean they're sending maybe 20 ahead uh, 20 a week or 30 a week and like how do you schedule for that and then the cost of that becomes very expensive to them so there's that process and then the whole uh, speaking of nyman ranch they had that horrible recall with the rancho rio people that they right. were dealing with and uh, the entire stock was condemned and they lost what i don't know 800,000 pounds of beef that, or was, n- that like was that was
0: nyman ranch right yeah bn so, bn yeah yeah so, so you know, there, there oh, are... Nyman Ranch is the pork. BN right. Ranch is Bill Nyman's thing. Right. They split, yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, it is a, pro- it's a huge problem for small processors to... Uh, or small farmers to find the right kind of processors yeah. in America. So, you know, one of the things that you really have to do is develop long-term relationships with these guys. You have to get in. You have to talk about strategy. Not to mention the fact that if if you go to... A uh, small grower today, and you say, I want to buy you know a hundred thousand chickens from you and schedule them like like this and create the pricing model and create the full bird utilization like like we try they to, tra- to tra- like tribe. like we try yeah. to do they 'll tell you you're crazy we can't do it because the the way that it works in in the poultry world for we 'll just use poultry as an example, but it 's mm-hmm. similar for all all animals is that you know a you have your genetics you know these farms, although they you know own these chickens and they own the, uh, much of the supply chain they don't own the genetics big corporations own genetics and that's just universally true Yeah. then there's breeding then there's the well they
1: don't own the chickens either they're just contract growers some of them do though. for Tyson and Purdue for Tyson and Purdue but for the smaller guys oh, for like, there's smaller a company guys. called yeah. Mary's yeah. Chicken
0: that uh-huh. we work with out on the west coast uh-huh. I was going to ask you who you had found yeah like, Dave Pittman Netanyahu. Mary's Chicken great guy right. he also is like friendly with Bill it's a very mm-hmm. small circle the people it it's like a handful of guys who are doing this the right way and they, those guys will own their feed. Mm-hmm. They'll own their their hatcheries. They'll right. own their chickens, and they'll they'll actually own the slaughterhouse and the packaging facility that that so takes care of everything. So they have vertically
1: integrated. That is vertically yeah.
0: integrated, and and that's actually how you do it. And you create a long term strategy to say, okay, this is what our forecast is going to be a few months from now. Right. This is what we have to do, and you you set those relationships. And the companies are very wary. They're very you know traditional, much like. Any other farm, any other form of agriculture, you have to go around to their place, kick around some dirt, you meet their families, you shake hands with them, you, you maybe cook a meal, yeah. and you start talking about this stuff, and that's how we've been able to solve for a lot of our problems is through those relationships. And right. through my relationship, honestly, as as a cook, you know, I know Bill because I was a, a cook at Oliveto back in 1999, and he used to come in with a, you know, a pig over his shoulder right. from his backyard, and he'd have to chase it around, and, you know, through the acorns and, and pull it out <laughs> and, and bring it in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it... It's these are these are really long-term problems, and they require long-term solutions. Yeah. What
1: about, um, how do investors play into companies like yours? And do you see more interest on Wall Street in these food-related businesses with specific philosophical intent, like Blue Apron or like Dig In, a seasonal market? I interviewed them mm-hmm. last week. I mean, I'm really curious about how these, you know, you guys with the, you've got the bigger scale going. Mm-hmm. You, you're solving some of these major problems. Um, and I'm curious, because Dig in, for example, got a huge amount of money off of yeah. Wall Street out of a, a hedge fund that the the founder had been or investment uh, group that the founder had been working with. How do you? What do you think is happening on Wall Street in terms of investment into companies like yours? Didn't you just get a new
0: big infusion of cash? Yeah, ourselves? we just raised around. You know, it's that's uh, it's an interesting question. You know, uh, I try to make it it's interesting, funny. It's Matt. it's. Yeah, I know <laughs> they're all they've all been very interesting. <laughs> It's funny it's funny though because when we entered into the food space you know my my partner Matt is a venture capitalist he worked in private equity really smart guy Food was not a really sexy investment a few years ago, if you remember. Well, everybody
1: thinks restaurants fail on the, you know, four out of five restaurants fail. Like, who is crazy enough to invest And e commerce food? People
0: really weren't super hip about it, but, you know, he had a great background. We had good relationships. We were able to raise money. It's not like we raised $135 million on day one. This has been through a lot of hard work and, and through you know, building this food system and right. building this customer base and and, and showing success and obviously. showing success. In in many ways, we've had to carve this path. And I think it's easier for companies now, you know, in, you know, partially because we've we've done well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a it continues to be an area of, of the market where, you know, um, companies really have to earn it. It's yeah. not it's not an easy space to be in the food business traditionally is not an easy space. And, you know, I think we've shown maybe for the first time in these kind of investments that you can run a really successful e-commerce food business. Right,
1: right. Very interesting. So um, we have a few minutes left, and I, here's my biggest question for you. Okay. This is what I asked the guy from uh, Dig In as well. Can you imagine a point where you and similarly minded businesses – as in like sourcing from these boutiques producers and and calling the shots in terms of what farmers grow and stuff like that. Can you imagine like coming together in an aggregate body and lobbying Congress the way, say, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association lobbies Congress to pass legislation for what they want? Can you imagine yourselves ever becoming like truly political? Because personally speaking, I think the only way any of this is ever going to change – on the grand scheme is when we start legislating through the farm bill through agriculture other agricultural measures that are taken on a legislative level um, so would you would you guys be like do you find that you 're in a political space as well as in a space where you just want to have, you know, food, yeah. food and social justice. Cause at to me, they kind of go hand in hand. Right? It,
0: it does go hand in hand and advocacy and lobbying is necessary. Orrin Hesterman who helped write the farm bill from Michigan. Sure. He's the father-in-law of our culinary manager actually oh, no kidding. So we're, we're friendly, yeah. you know, and, and it's that, you know, it's that kind of like, um, that old Berkeley crew. A lot of those guys yeah. are lobbyists. A lot of those guys are really heavily involved, you know the Berkeley Mafia <laughs> and and um, the Berkeley Farm Mafia. Um, they're 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 really heavily involved in that kind of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the people that we work with are forward thinking. We work with a guy named Bob Klein who mm-hmm. owns a company called Community Grains. He's bringing in these these heirloom seeds from Italy, these wheat strains, growing them at farms like Full Belly Full Belly in California, uh-huh. and making them into um, you know uh, the first whole grain from a single source pasta in America, and we're working with him. Right. And it's important to, to aggregate that those ideas into something that's broader and, and talk to, you know, Congress about, you know, things like GMOs, things like sustainable agriculture, moving money into the right places. It's a, it's a big problem, and we're very much thinking like that, um, and I would absolutely, you know— be interested in so we're going that. to be holding you to that. Okay? I, I mean, we're already having some conversations. You know,
1: it's well. It's, I mean, are you are you meeting with Chuck Grassley? That's what I wanted. I mean, yeah. Because like, are, are, I mean, honestly, I mean, has anybody talked to Tom Vilsack? I mean, he had Kathleen Merrigan on board to like do the know your farmer, know your food thing, yeah. and not a fucking thing changed. Exactly. Basically. So I mean, that was very. Tr- personally speaking, that was incredibly disappointing to see that they, you know, possibly with the best intentions in the world, certainly from Dr. Merrigan, um, you know, managed to accomplish essentially nothing. I mean, even the Food Safety Modernization Act has yet to be implemented because Congress doesn't want to vote enough money into the FDA and the USDA to make some of the changes necessary, you know, to modernize and some of the, the changes system, they're
0: I mean, making are, are, you know, un- are going backwards, the like backwards. the hemp,
1: you know, instead of HACCP, now you have hemp, which is HACCP-based, I can't remember what it means, but yeah. Essentially, it takes inspectors off the line for inspecting poultry and and pork. I mean, these are not forward-thinking people. These are people literally fighting for their lives in terms of uh, lobbying dollars and maintaining the status quo. And so that's why my new, like, the end of every show now, I'm like, how political are you willing to get? Like, who are you going to vote for? Like, are you writing your congressman? How do you spread your word to your consumers so that they, too, vote in a way that
0: supports a better system for everybody. It's a really, really big deal for us. And we have had our own problems supporting Mm -hmm. the food system because of legislation. And it's it's a major, major issue. You know, one of the problems that we have in California, you know, to buy farm produce directly from farms, it goes through a series of inspections in in California specifically, which are completely redundant. And the produce, I'm talking about, um, you know, pest control in California. You know, it goes through one inspection at the farm at the source. It goes through another inspection at a a checkpoint. It goes through another inspection with us. And then it goes through the mail system. It goes through another inspection. Do we really need four different separate bodies checking for the exact same thing in California? The reason why they have those kind of regulations in place in many cases is it's their economic reasons because large factory farm growers are trying to put more stops in place to limit the amount of business small farms can do. And there are just countless laws like that in different agricultural areas in the country that affect, you know, unfortunately, the little guy. Yes. And it's our job to support him. And, you know, the biggest thing that we can do as a company is support those small growers. Work within those constraints, and then send people incredible food on a weekly basis and when they start to appreciate that, we have power the power of advocacy through our customers right and that 's a lot bigger yeah. than honestly you know me and like five guys who are known in the industry, we need to really get hundreds of thousands of people behind this and and really create a, a positive fight here oh, and yeah. i think when 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 politicians see that, there are voters on the line who care about these things, and they if they can 't get there. They're, you know, Chinese purple long beans because there are regulations in place that make them, you know, make those uh, ingredients either yeah, inaccessible or too costly. Yeah, you can't lines or whatever. The, and yeah. a lot of those laws are just ridiculous laws created yeah. by lobbyists from large farms. Yeah. So there, there are ways to fight this. We have a vision for that in the future, and we stand behind it.
1: That's fantastic. So – um where can people learn more about Blue Apron?
0: <laughs> so, you know, obviously our website, <laughs> www.blueapron.com.
1: Yeah. And, uh, or just call really, me on my
0: cell phone, whatever. Yeah, just call Matt. <laughs> yeah,
1: because he can, he, he can talk. Now, that was, that was a really interesting thing. I mean, these, these little, the, you know, the issues that face the smaller scale farms, whether it's your growing meat or your growing produce, um, are just... Uh, you know, they are. I think I don't want to say that they are deliberate efforts to crush competition or to crush the small guy, but they're they're sort of like what Rachel Maddow. Um, she wrote a book called "Drift" about mm-hmm. foreign policy which was about, it was basically mission creep. And I think that's what happened. And I mean, as we, you know, expanded the agricultural system in the 50s and 60s, like all these unintended consequences occurred along the way. Mm-hmm. And now we have the system that we have. And, um, and I, think, I think one of the things that I find most frustrating, and then I, I will let you go after that, but after I've made this speech, um, is, <laughs> is that I want to see the news media, like I want to see Rachel Maddow Talk about this on her show, like talk about these issues on her show, because food and public health and the insurance companies, we're all like it's all part of the same thing that we're, you know, we're we're some of us are looking for the same thing. Maybe not everyone. But but, you know, it's all part and parcel of the national, uh, you know, agenda going forward. And somehow it's not this is not making it onto um, major
0: media. Yeah, in a way that i you're think actually is you're 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 a hundred percent right about that, and I, I would I would like to think that you're I uh, would like to you know carrying the torch of of, of leading these discussions because yeah. you're really talking about it, and it's true. You know, it's frustrating to me that not more people don't think about it, and there's a lot of misinformation, a lot, and that's unfortunate too. So, you know, keep on doing what you're doing for sure. Well, I think you. that's really amazing, and beyond that, there oh, needs good. to maybe be maybe
1: you'd like to be a sponsor.
0: Th- absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> oh, we'd love to have you. Really, we would be. We'd be honored. Um, but yeah, I mean, it takes it takes companies like yours, though, that are doing well and are successful and are reaching this huge consumer base to, I think, really, even though in a certain level you're peaching to the choir because these people are responding to the quality of your ingredients. But at the same time, it's also a whole audience of people who long to get back into the kitchen and don't know how to get started. And yeah. I think that's where you guys really have created a unique uh, model that other... I I hope other companies will continue to follow so thanks very much for being on the show today, well thank Matt. you for having really me appreciate it so www.blueapron.com <laughs> check it out thank you so much <laughs> thanks a lot you guys and thank you to my sponsor Kane winery as always and to my engineer jack insley see you next week folks